Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again to do another episode of the Knollcast. Uh, Bud, looking forward to jumping into a listener question podcast. Uh, mainly, we'll get as many of these as done as possible. Again, the feedback has been fantastic. If we don't get to all of them, um, you know, we'll certainly circle back and, and knock them out later in the week or first of next. So, as always, we'll tip our hat to New Iberia, Louisiana, Louisiana Hot Sauce, title sponsor of the Knollcast, and uh, the driving force behind our humble pod. With Bud, uh, with that, Bud, let's uh, jump into these questions. And we're actually just going to tack the questions tonight. A lot of the individual subjects that we would normally start the podcast off with are really contained in the list that we have here. So uh, we'll just get started, see where this goes, and look forward to putting out another episode of the Knollcast. Let's go ahead and do that, man. So uh, Austin, I'm just glad to be back. Uh, glad, pod- glad to be back podcasting with you here. <laughs> Uh, Austin says, hey, is the West Virginia game still on? Uh, I know the AC delayed to comment uh, about conference only, uh, but we could be looking at power power only instead. Uh, so how does this affect year zero coaches in particular? So a lot of good questions here I know that are on the minds of people. People trying to make plans, dude. Uh, you know, like, are, are we gonna, are we going to actually have this game in September? Is it going to be played in Atlanta up, up your way? I know I'm trying to make plans. Uh, I told a couple of my buddies if uh, things get pushed back, Probably to go ahead and book a golf trip, man. You know, and, and get, get some good rates on, on that. I, I usually am not able to do anything uh, vacation-wise September, October, November. So uh, what do you think? I, I, it's still on, technically. We haven't heard anything about an official it's cancellation. It's on. Uh, a tip of the hat to Mr. Marcello, who you work with. He's done a great job over the past couple of weeks. Um, well, he's, he's done a great job in general. and uh, But he's, he's been a great source of information and, and accurate information. Uh, during a time period where it's hard to have good information. Uh, he has talked about a possible scheduling alliance between the Big 12 SEC and ACC. I'll say this, that some of the skepticism tied to this game that Bud and I have talked about, it's certainly not a lack of Florida State wanting to partake in this. It's $4.5 million. They'll do whatever's possible to collect a check like that. Um, I do have some concerns over the longer term for the maybe the kickoff series and how viable it is and a from a you know three to five year perspective, but that's not necessarily a, a null cast focus type of subject matter. Uh, the Boise State game, I would say, there's less than a ten percent chance of happening. Uh, the West Virginia game taking place, I might say, is better than fifty fifty, uh, with the idea that it being you know in Atlanta on the exact dates that we've talked about, maybe a little bit less than fifty fifty. But Florida State certainly wants to do it. Ton of you know, relatively speaking, ton of money involved. Uh, for an athletic department that desperately needs it. So uh, some of the skepticism that you've heard over the last month or so from us is not necessarily tied to the Florida State perspective on things. If they can play it, they will. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly want to play it if, if they can do it safely. Um, I I think Marcelo is on to something about, about a conference uh, you know, scheduling alliance. I still know they want to make sure they get in their, their conference games first. And so I, I think your point to where maybe it's not above 50% that it happens on, on that exact date in that exact city uh, is, is probably, probably pretty valid. Uh, and we also don't know, you know how many non-conference games are these leagues going to be able to play? Like if you're trying to get 10 in, that only leaves room for two. So I assume if Florida State, that's, that's West, West Virginia and, and Florida most likely uh, Boise would be out. I mean, I, I think they absolutely would love to play these non-conference games if they can get their regular games in. The, the question is, can they actually get 
those regular games in, and, and by regular games, I mean their conference games, that's probably a little bit a little bit tougher said than done. Uh, we, we obviously saw some some high school stuff canceled today and probably more cancellations coming later on this week. Uh, but man, like I, I think it's, it's something they want to do. We just don't have actual answers on it right now. And that's not like, hey, we haven't dug on this. It's the schools don't know, right? I was actually talking to Marcelo today on our brainstorm call. He's like, man, the frustrating part of this is it's not that people won't talk to you. It's not that they won't tell you information. He said, they don't know. They don't have stuff to say because everybody's just sitting there watching the numbers, right? Watching the hospital capacity, watching all that kind of stuff. Because there's ways this thing could go to where we end up getting maybe 10 games in the fall. There's ways this thing could go where we absolutely don't play any games in the fall. It just is going to depend. Um, now, Second part of Boston's question here, we appreciate him sending it in. I think it's a pretty good one. He says, uh, so if you're looking at Power 5 only, basically, uh, how does this affect year zero coaches in particular? I, personally, Austin, I have argued that basically all first-year coaches should be considered year zero coaches, so I love you adopting that language that, that I've been using recently, and I, I can't take credit for that uh, as, as an inventor of that. That's actually my friend Bill Connolly. Uh, back when we used to work together at Expedition, back when they you know cared about having sports uh, as as part of their portfolio, um, but I think this is truly a year zero situation. I mean, you have a new offense, defense, and system to install. You're not really getting this, the type of time with your players to do it. Um, I think playing only Power Five it makes it a lot tougher to make a bowl game. Now, particularly for Coach Norvell, maybe not quite as tough, right? Because Florida State had already had three out of their four non-conference games this year as like legit P5 style games at basically two plus boys. You, you do have the one cupcake in there. But for a lot of year zero coaches out there, this is going to make them look a lot worse because there are some year zero coaches who certainly have three or four guaranteed wins in the non-conference and now they're not going to have those opportunities. In fact, Something I was looking at today, Ingram, and check this out. If we play just just conference-only games across the spectrum, uh, we're not going to have enough teams that are bowl eligible. And I don't mean that as we're not going to have enough teams get to six wins. We're not going to have enough teams who get to a right. 500 record because there are a lot of these teams. Go back and look at how many teams sneak in by going 6-6 six and six overall and 3-1 and one in the non-conference. It's a whole lot, especially some of your middling ACC and SEC teams. So you're going to see more first-year coaches missing bowl games. Now, we don't know like who some of these non-conference games for Florida State would be replaced with. We just talked about probably keeping Florida and trying to keep West Virginia. Uh, and if that's so, if you play 10, your eight conference games and them, I, I still think you feel pretty good about making a bowl game, but your margin for error is decreased because you don't have that one guaranteed win on the schedule, right? Um, I think I don't think five and seven is likely. I think it becomes more likely than it would be otherwise if that were to happen. 
Next question comes from Lee. Uh, myself and a buddy were discussing the pay to play for college athletics, understanding that most schools make a majority of their athletic money from football and basketball. Our guess is baseball is third. How do schools manage not to lose players recruits over money? What is a way the NCAA can make this as fair as possible across all campuses and sports? And what are your thoughts on the overall impact, both negative and positive? So I, I guess I'm a little bit confused by the question here. And, and if this is, if this discussion of clarity is good, Justin can leave it in. If not, you know, maybe we'll, we'll cut it. But so how do the schools manage to not lose players slash recruits over money? Like lose them to who? Other sports? To I other would schools? interpret that as other schools and say that it's almost impossible that they wouldn't. Um, as just as though they currently lose recruits over money, whether it be over the table or, or on top of it, oh. if, if I'm reading this correctly. So, so, he, so he's basically asking, um, because it's so important to have winning football and basketball programs, that leads to you know, money to recruits and thus, like, how do you not end up losing kids due to that? Like, basically, he's saying the reason why they get paid is because of, of that kind of stuff. so. Because of the importance of the sports? Okay, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I will tell you that kids in other sports get paid some too. Not as much, but they do. Women's basketball, some of those girls get paid. Now, is it a lot? No. But because of the, the, the kind of you know, bloat that we have in college athletics, the salaries that some of these coaches make is pretty big. And it makes a lot of sense for them to secure their job, like to help their job security in the future by making sure that they, they have players who help them win. Cause it, as it was explained to me, there's not these really cushy jobs that are, are sitting there waiting for you. If you get fired as a head coach at the P5 level, you can still find an analyst job or an assistant job making 80, 90, 100 or, you know, a couple hundred thousand if you land an assistant job in almost every circumstance, right? If you have any kind of head coaching experience at the P5 level, you can go be an analyst somewhere, um, but if you coach a, a, like a, a non-revenue sport, man, there may not be a soft landing spot for you, and that's tough. You you, you may have to go work a retail job. So, uh, is there a way the NCAA can make this fair across all campuses and sports? Um, not that it wants to. No, I, I'll say that. Like, I don't think it has any interest in in, in making that fair. It has interest in keeping its current model, which is not paying the players officially, not not classifying them as labor. Um, ultimately, I think that if they did pay the guys above the table, which NIL, name, image, and likeness is a start, probably not the ultimate ending point, it might create a more fair market system. And the main thing I think it would do is it would cut out some of the shady middlemen right now who currently get as go-betweens, you know, from, from prospect to school, you know, the, the, the uncle who pops up the, out of nowhere, the, the high school coaches, little the handlers, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't like, do you have any ideas of how the NCAA can make this fair across all campuses no, I, and sports? I, I, I just don't think it it's possible. To, I, guess? I don't know. And I don't know that it wants to, I mean, just as, uh, you know, it, it's not fair <laughs> when you're Florida state and you look at, some of the locker room drawings and stuff that Alabama's looking at and some of the projects that they have on board, you know, I mean, it's just a different, different type of situation for some of these schools. I don't, you know, what I, what I do think the NCAA would step in is if you start to see 
basketball and football basically start to cannibalize other sports. Uh, and I don't necessarily walk down, I don't believe that path per se. Uh, but if you start to see such a focus on those and so much revenue going directly and only into those, uh, that you might see some sort of, uh, more equal distribution throughout each sport. But, you know, I don't know. We're looking at an NCAA body that doesn't have a whole lot of teeth to it right now. And I, I think only becomes more, toothless with every you know year or two that passes so i i don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of government or not government excuse me um you know overseeing kind of regulatory efforts um and maybe there'll be a a commissioner of college football at some point in time and that he might play a role in that but as of right now i don't see a whole lot of of oversight from from anybody really yeah i just don't think there's really the the, the impetus uh, for it. Like they're the NCAA wants to do enforcement, but I don't think it wants to do that level of enforcement. It just wants to catch the people who are doing like 140 in a school zone. Cause that looks bad. All right. Well, thank our friends at for the table restaurant group township, uh, Madison social is always fantastic partners for us. Uh, encourage you to support them in whatever way possible, whether it be uh, carry out, whether it be uh, some of online sales from afar, uh, they've got another great series of shirts, as they always do, uh, that have been made available. So they have been fantastic to us. Uh, they've been fantastic for the fan base. And we certainly encourage you to support them in whatever way possible. Uh, they, they're going to need it. A lot of these small, independent restaurants are going to need it in whatever way possible. They're great people. Uh, and they've uh, supported us and many other uh, exceptional Florida State media out there that's been around for a long time. So. Uh, please do all you can to help them know that it's exceptionally appreciated by both Bud and I. And, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, to sitting on the porch of Madison Social one day, having a beer and, and having uh, zero concerns about all the other things that are going on around us. And hopefully that day will be here sooner than later. Absolutely. Guys, wish y'all luck. We know you're going to be there for us. We hope our audience is there for you. So, Let's get into this with Jack. Jack asks, hey, how will the hire of the new booster CEO affect the boosters? Uh, do you know much about him? It's my understanding, and I could be wrong, that the booster higher-ups have been stuck in their, their kind of older ways for some time. Is there anything you'd love to see change with them with the new hire? Um, so, look, I'm real hesitant to use this phrase because normally when you hear it, it's a you know, athletic director or college president that's sitting here talking to you after they've obviously whiffed on three or four other people that they were wanting. But this this really was the booster's first choice. I mean, they wanted Michael Alford, uh, identified him early. I think there were some concerns throughout the process as to whether or not they're going to be able to see this thing through. But, you know, it's, it will be critical when, when it's appropriate. And uh, I'll also use terms like a home run hire because I, I believe this absolutely is that. This is what they wanted. This is the direction they wanted to go in. Uh, the resume is incredible. And, um, you know, whether or not the boosters have been kind of old in their ways or however you want to phrase it, this move is certainly not reflective of that. I mean, it is a forward-thinking, aggressive move and uh, I think something that's only going to serve Florida State very well in the years to come. I'm, I'm excited that they got this guy. I- how much do you know? Uh, about I know a decent amount about him just from talking to some people that have been involved in the process. I mean, as a Southern guy, as uh, a lot of his experience <clears throat> is in uh, is in the South. I think his parents are either in Chattanooga or Dalton, uh, somewhere in that area. 
Uh, and it's for him, it's kind of, you know, coming back home to the region that he's most familiar with. I, I know this has been talked about, and I'm not saying people that have talked about it are, are incorrect, but I would say from people that I've talked to right now, this guy is not necessarily like athletic director in waiting, which, I, which when you look at his resume, it makes sense, and that may well turn out to be the case. Um, but I think the boosters want somebody to lead that organization aggressively. I'm, I'm thrilled that this is the direction they went in. I'll, I'll put it this way. And, and not that some of the candidates that were that from Tallahassee or kind of a, associated with the old guard or whatever terminology you want to use. Man, when I was talking to Bud about some of the names and, and some of the, the, the aspects of the process that they were going through, it was just, you know, some of them were not the most forward thinking, I guess, or, or going to really bring uh, a new perspective and, and thrilled that this is the direction they went in and, uh, I think it'll only serve Florida State really well. Yeah, I, I, I just think they were stuck in their ways. Some there's there's a lot of ways you, you could market the program. Uh, I, I think you need to really understand that this is a program in the South, but it's also a program in the state of Florida that's not entirely Southern, right? You have such a, a stretched out fan base uh, culturally, but also geographically, and I, I think they need to focus on things like maybe not selling season ticket packages quite so much and. Allowing more, more flex packs, more, uh, more kind of premium options for the fans who do want to come up. I, I think because there, there are so many other good entertainment options out there, uh, they need to find a way to sell as a couple times a year premium option for a larger percentage of people that I think right now they're, com- they're comfortable admitting want that, right? I, I think they're still kind of stuck in their ways of, people buying season tickets. And I don't think that there are enough fans. Your diehards are always going to do it, right? But I think there's a lot of fans out there who would love to go to two or three games a year. If you live in, you know, I don't know, call it Tampa or Miami, right? Places where you can day trip it, but it's not a day trip you want to make. Miami, you really can't day trip it here if you have a family. Like that's, that's just a huge pain. Um, so that, that's that's one thing to look at. As I mentioned, I, I think more of the experiential is, is another area Florida State could really go into. Not just doing the booster tour, but but actually uh, some customized aspects of it, right? Uh, allowing you to you know be on the sidelines of a game, like during the game, things like that. There there are all kind of little aspects you can sell. Uh, you also are going to have to have somebody, and we'll, we'll see if Alfred can do this. Uh, and it won't just be all him, but It'll have to be the organization, but it starts top down of getting people to buy in and supporting the program in a non-transactional way. And by that, I mean, you cannot just, they have to to get people to see their donation as more than just a requirement to buy season tickets. And for some people, They'll never be able to do that, right? For some people, they just see it as transactional, right? I give you money, I get on the list, I get season tickets. Cool. But I think for retention purposes, retention of the donor, having that emotional attachment, ha- having that, that attachment that is more than just, uh, you know, goods for services or, you know, excuse me, dollars for goods or services type, type aspect there is, is really pretty important. That's something that Florida State, I don't believe, has done super well recently. And so they're going to have to do a better job of that. I also think that 
There are things they should push for to make the in-stadium experience better. Uh, not having Wi-Fi when Florida has it, I, I think, is is a pretty big miss. And that's only going to become more of a miss every year. I know students who don't want to go to the games and stay to the games because they don't have Wi-Fi. And that sounds crazy to somebody who's in their 40s, right? Or even in their late 30s who went to a game and would have no problem sitting through a game when they were a student without having cell phone service. But nowadays, like people want to get on their cell phones at halftime and they want to Snapchat each other or you don't really TikTok each other, but, uh, you know, they, they, they need to use those mobile communication things to stay in touch to figure out what their plans are after the game. That's another thing I, I think they need to really push for is, is the internet aspect because I think, you know, my son doesn't really care about that because he's not old enough, but give it a year or two. I guarantee you he'll, he'll probably be somebody who wants to go to a game but may not want to sit through a yeah, four hour you're gonna, game. You don't want to be able to hand the iPad off certainly at some point in time. And uh, as right. a man in his thirties, who's uh, was without a cell phone for four or five days here over the past week, it's embarrassing how uh, just like absent full capacity I felt the whole time. Uh, and I'm, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd, but it's true. Uh, and, People want their smartphones. They want to be able to utilize all that they offer throughout the time. Uh, but I'm going to completely derail the podcast here real quickly. Are you familiar with the prospect Sebastian Cigar out of uh, Grayson, Georgia? He's a he's a linebacker who committed to Georgia Tech over Miami here just recently. Yes. Oh, really? No, I... I, uh... <laughs> I want to read you the quote because this kid's already one of my top 10 favorite college football players out there once he actually matriculates. With Miami, yeah, you get the transfer portal you feel, but at Georgia Tech, you get the home feel. So transfer portal you. Good for you, kid. Uh, that is that is funny to see. Oh, Sager. That is, that is still a, a wild quote. <laughs> All right, so where were we here? All right, Michael asked a hypothetical. Oh, yes, Michael, good question. Uh, years ago, <clears throat> Ingram and Bud had the foresight to invest in Louisiana hot sauce. Oh, hey, can, can we jump? Can, yeah, I, can I ask you something real quick? Uh, it's still thing. You're pretty plugged in over there. Do you think that the booster prize position is sort of a an audition to become the AD? I, an audition is probably a a good phrase to say it. I, yeah, I don't, like I said, I don't think it's AD in waiting at this point. Now he may become the athletic director. Um, you know, budgets may dictate, and I, I don't even want to talk like that because it would it makes it sound like this guy would possibly back into the position when his resume tells you that that's not the case at all. He's exceptionally qualified and certainly has a resume that's far more reflective of the field that he's in than Florida State's current athletic director. Uh, But I don't think there's a current like handshake deal, wink, wink, you'll be the AD in two years. It wouldn't shock me if that doesn't necessarily come to fruition though. Okay. That's that's fair. Uh, I was trying to, uh, obviously a lot of people said, oh, this is just the, like he's going to be the next AD. And I'm like, I, I haven't heard that as like a definitive thing, man. But I would say he's probably the only choice who they would have hired who would even be mentioned in that conversation. I'm trying to think. Yeah, of the, you know, and look, I don't claim to know everything that goes on over there, but of the names that I'm familiar with, I think he's the only one who has a resume like this. That, uh, I mean, look, you know, Dallas Cowboys, Alabama, Oklahoma. You're talking about some of the biggest brands in sports. And uh, the guy's got an exceptional resume. And the uh, Seminole Boosters fought like hell to get him. I mean, it was not 
not necessarily an easy process, but it was the guy that they identified uh, really from step one that ultimately they wanted to, you know, to go through this process and end up with a, with a hire and uh, good for them. Hats off. They made it. It's aggressive. They're paying him very well. Uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big boy move and it's something the Florida state fans should be athletic or should be really excited about because it's a, it's a confirmation that, uh, you know, they want to play at the highest levels possible. And let me ask you this too. You, you rattled off off those places he's been. Dallas Cowboys, Oklahoma, Alabama. Not that those places don't have to fundraise and not they don't have to be creative in it, but those are like bluest of the blue blood programs and, and organizations. Do you worry that that he's not really had to show sort of success in the, I don't want to say true underdog role because Florida State's not that, but they do have to be more creative and scrappy in certain ways. And like, do you, do you at all worry that they went out and got a name like who's been attached to big organizations, but hasn't actually had to do enough that is sort of fit? I think to what the concern there is, is valid. Um, and look, you know, when he was at Oklahoma, you're at the, uh, high peak of an energy cycle. Yeah. Getting record, you know, getting record number donations is, is nice and still, you know, not something that you sleepwalk to, but you have to kind of have a little bit of a, a perspective on it. But I, I think when you look at what he did during his time with, with CMU with central Michigan, that's certainly not a blue blood. That's not a place where you just open up the door and uh, you know, Billy oil money, the third comes in and gives you $5 million because that's what he thinks is fun. Um, you know, he did a great job with, with that renegotiated a deal with Adidas that was Florida state was really impressed with and uh, you know, hit, hit an all time high in uh percentage increase in revenue and uh, things that they did with the, the Chippewas there that were, you know, uh, to take notice and to appreciate. And I think, uh, in a way, really kind of compliments and, and rounds out his resume to where he's not just working for, uh, you know, the blue bloods of the world and, and kind of uh, in positions that can be seen from afar as possibly being on autopilot. I, I think it's a really good answer, man. That's, that's awesome. So Michael asks, uh, hypothetical, years ago, Ingram and Bud had the foresight to invest in Louisiana hot sauce. They took their fortunes and ro- rolled it over uh, to real estate with the help of legendary home loans. And of course they protected their millions with planning from Travis Johnson at the matter and Johnson law firm. This is a great question already. Uh, they celebrated their windfall by throwing a block party catered uh, by for the table restaurant group. Now in 2020 money is no issue for them. Uh, they want to help out the Knowles get back to national prominence the quickest way possible. What should they do with their money? Start dropping huge bags, donate to build football facilities or something else. So the quickest answer I can give you is not a very sexy one. And that is that, if you told me I had a $25 million check to go to Florida State Athletics, I would donate it with the idea that I would need to uh, endow as many of the football scholarships as possible. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, it's a public secret, but it's a dirty little secret that Florida State uh, does not have those scholarships endowed. And that's something that eventually is going to have to be addressed. And that's the biggest thing that you could do for long-term support of the program. If I had any money left over, but I'd give it a, you know, I'd put it in some kind of shady LLC and, and let uh, whoever it is try to get the most impactful player they can along the line of scrimmage in this year's recruiting class. But um, my immediate step would be to address the scholarships and then hopefully Florida State's on a more 
firm foundation that they can kind of build off from there. That that's really my answer as well. Um, if you don't have a Dallas scholarships, you're, you're basically just paying down the interest every year. If you think about it like that, right? If you have, if you have the Dallas scholarships, you're, you're, you're really hitting your principal quite hard. And that's, that's what needs to be done. But it, you're right. That's not a sexy answer. That's not an answer that gets them back to national prominence quickly. But ultimately, any kind of money you give, unless you earmark it, is going to have to go to that anyway, at least in part, because they, they have to build up and they have to pay for the scholarships every year. I, if I want to give a bit of a sexier answer, I guess I would probably say, you know, football only facility, give me, give me another foundation donation uh, for that building. That's probably what, what I would what I would do, but the your answer is, in my opinion, the right answer. I, I, I think you nailed it. Now, speaking of making sound decisions, Abram, legendary home loans is absolutely a sound decision. We've had over sixty Nolcast listeners get their home loan through Legendary, through Shannon Young, through Chad, including myself, home loan and refi. Excellent experiences both times. They can go get you the funding you need. Excellent customer service. Little null chat mixed in. There's a reason so many of our listeners use these guys and they love them. We, we, we get the emails all the time. We get the feedback. Heck, they even put some of that feedback in our Apple podcast reviews, right? Just, just, just what a good experience they had with legendary. Give them a call 844 FSU loan. That's 844 FSU loan. Tell them the null cast sent you. They'll, they'll, they'll know it and uh, give Shannon a shout out for us. Tell him what's up. He'll look you up. All right. Uh, next question comes from Brent. He says, sorry for the bummer question uh, up front here, but speaking generally, how do you think the loss of fans traveling to college towns for game days will be felt in those towns this fall and whether the type of loss of income uh, that these towns usually see will result in a lower spectacle for the sport in the years to come, even if football resumes on normal schedule? That's a that's not a fun question, but it's a good one, Brent. Uh, but I'll let you let you take the first crack at this. Sure. So uh, there are some businesses that really rely on football Saturdays in the fall. However, I've talked to some people who own some of these businesses that I I kind of thought of that way, and their owners basically told me, "Look, will it hurt? Yeah. Will that wipe us out?" No. If the classes are all virtual and students don't return to campus, then yeah, that, that's what really hurts us. But if you got everybody, if you got all the students coming back to campus, if you got all the students coming back to town, if they're living there, they're going out, they're, they're frequenting our, our establishments, we're, we're going to be okay there. Now, you know, some of your merchandise places, that probably really hurts because like there's only so many Florida State t-shirts that the students are going to buy. You're going to have to have a lot of out of town people come in for the games. Those places really do absolutely make a killing on their walk up business on those game weekends. That, that's, that's going to be a pretty big deal. Um, if you're the company that runs like the, the tailgating setups, that's going to hurt, right? Like that's, that's not, that, that's pretty tied to, uh, to, to football. I don't think the sec to the second part of Brent's question. I don't think it will lower the spectacle for the sport in the years to come if uh, if football resumes normal schedule in fall twenty twenty one. I think people actually might realize some people might realize how much they miss it, and I think the spectacle 
will return. Now, the flip side of that is some people might realize that you can get a, a, a TV for twelve hundred bucks. It's like eighty six inches, and and that's that's not a bad experience either. But I, I think people will miss getting out of their house, man. Like, don't aren't you kind of kind of bum being just cooped up in the house all the time now? Like, we don't yeah. go out and and do stuff much right now. Like, like especially not because. You know, so our family members are, are immunocompromised, so we're trying to play it carefully. Like, I want to get out of the house and do some stuff. I think I think a lot of people are the same way, and they're going to realize that how much they missed it. I think I'll miss maybe the tailgates more than I'll miss the games, you know? I, I mean, I will miss having beers, hanging out with people, seeing people that listen to the show, seeing great old friends of mine. It's a bummer. It's a real bummer. It is, and, and that's, you know, one of my favorite favorite aspects of, of the calendar year. So I, I, I think your point about people realizing how just fun the whole, the whole damn <laughs> process is, uh, is, is really true. And uh, I do think that s- most of these businesses will be resilient and will still be there, but yeah, it's going to have a, I mean, it has the chance to have a really horrible impact. Uh, and, and hopefully that's not what we see happen, but if you don't have students on campus, uh, then you kind of start to have some of these horrible situations that people have talked about, and uh, you know that's that's a that's a bad situation for everybody. Not not everybody goes to school and has their tuition paid for. Some of these people have to go to school and and work at the pizza place or ten bar, or, or you know some kids are reliant upon some of these jobs that are created to be able to make their way through school, and it's just not a it's just a bad situation in general, and hopefully. Uh, you know, the, the negative impacts are, are mitigated as much as possible. And you and I don't have to sit here and talk about doom and gloom, uh, you know, nearly as much as we have over the past two months or so. Yeah, I, I think we try to, I don't know, like, I, I don't think we try to go doom and gloom if, if we can avoid it. And we, we just, we go doom and gloom if it's relevant, I feel like, not, not, not just to do it. There are some, some out there that I feel like are just not, I'm not saying like Florida State podcast, but just in general, some of these college football media kind of like, man, yeah. that's, you all seem really excited to yeah, talk really about excited. a non-football story. People have polarized, you know, <laughs> shocking. In 2020 America, people have polarized themselves on either side of the issue. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there do appear to be a subsect out there that almost enjoy the idea that uh, we won't be able to take part in this uh, this flawed but incredibly entertaining sport that uh, you and I are so fortunate to be able to talk about. So I also kind of think, and this is just way off the rails here, but, but if, if I might, I do think that there are some people in sports media, e- even successful ones who wanted to be more serious journalists coming out of, out of journalism school and didn't get those kind of plum assignments to cover the White House or you know, some kind of big political thing or, or something more, more serious. And so they ended up taking the sports gig. You think a lot of people want to be sports journalists, but for a while, actually, like sports writing was not the gig that everybody wanted. It, it was sort of like kind of got it if, if you didn't get some of the other, other journalism gigs. And so I wonder if some of those folks, when a story comes along that's not totally sports, but they get to cover it, aren't just jumping out of their shoes at, at the chance to show that they are capital J mm-hmm. serious journalists and they can cover a serious story. And, and you know, that, that type of thing. not, not that it's not serious. Cause I, I get that it is guys, but I always kind of wondered like, man, you seem like so much more excited to cover 
this off the field story than you are to cover any of this on the field stuff. That's yeah. it's kind of weird to me. But then again, I'm somebody who got into this as a passion, and I'm not sure that everybody else did. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Um, Jonathan asked question regarding historical recruiting, I guess, during the Jimbo era and thereafter. You've talked in the past about how some programs are fully committed to recruiting. There was a period where Jimbo's staff were just killing it in the recruiting world. What I'm wondering was what's the program's brown bag factor was like back then compared to competing programs and how, if at all, that has changed over time. I knew they had some great recruiters like Brewster and Craig, uh, but I'm wondering if there wasn't a bit more juice on tap uh, then as well. Granted, this would be all rumor guesswork. Yeah, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Uh, but also, I assume that especially from and after about midway through Willie's first season, our, brag, our brown bag game was not so strong. I also assume it's too early in Norvell's career for that effort to get a ton of momentum. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Good question. A lot there. Wow. Okay. Excellent question. Uh, yes, this is all hypothetical. To, <laughs> like Jonathan suggested, it, it is definitely all hypothetical. At least, at least my answer is. Uh, I would say that Florida State's uh, bad game uh, was competitive back then. Now, maybe not as competitive as some. But then again, you are in the state of Florida, and so you have a lot of access to talent. It, it may not need to be quite as competitive uh, as, as some others are. And I, I want to make this very clear. I, I've never really heard of a prospect going to a school just because that school dropped a bag on it, right? I, I, I'm sure it happens. I actually haven't heard of it like, hey, man, we, we thought we were definitely going to get this kid, but the only school that dropped the bag was, was, you know, this school. And even though they're not even a very good school at all, like they, they got him. It, it's generally like a, it's, it's part of the process. Okay. You actually have to do a good job recruiting. The kid actually has to want to go to your school. Kids don't pick schools that they have no interest in going to. They don't, they don't want to live there in that town. They don't like the coaches that much, but hey, you just dropped a hundred K on this kid. He's going to come for the most part. That doesn't happen. So you do have to have really good recruiters and you have to be able to pitch out a coaching plan. And, and I think maybe more important now than it used to be because they're exciting period, like show some, some signs of progress in, in your first couple of years and show that you're building towards something. Maybe show that you have a track record of building towards something. But I, I think they're, they're a bad game back then. I'm not saying a staff's bad game because it's not the same thing. The staff is not the one dropping a bag if they even know about it. Uh, but I think it was, it was pretty competitive. And yet, I also know of an instance in which they told a kid, you're not good enough to have an agent. <laughs> Call me back <laughs> when, uh, when you got rid of this handler. Now, the kid wasn't that good. I mean, the coach was kind of right about it. And, um, you know, I think there was some attitude stuff going on there, and I don't think the guy ever made the NFL. Pretty sure you know what I'm yeah, talking about. I think I told you this before. Off, off, yeah. Uh, but to the second part of this question, did the bad game drop off during Willie's tenure? Uh, I would say a strong yes. Yeah, it did. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned this, so it's one of the times where Bud and I, I don't know if we even disagreed with each other, Bud just said, well, what you're telling me doesn't necessarily make sense. And I said, well, not necessarily saying it does make sense, but 
I believe that this has happened. Uh, I think Willie lost almost all meaningful uh, off the record support after the Florida game of his first year. And uh, that's kind of silly to think that it happened that quickly, but people that were close to the situation had real problems with what they were seeing and had real problems supporting it uh, at a level that was necessarily going to uh, be, you know, helpful in, in sustaining that situation. So I think Florida state did a really good job in recruiting in 10, 11, 2010, 11 and 12, and were as aggressive as they have been uh, at any point in time since, I don't know, the middle nineties or something like that. Um, I would associate that period of aggressiveness more with like the Craig, Eddie Grand type staff. I know Brewster uh, has a reputation and I'm not saying that during that kind of second half of Jimbo's tenure that everything was, uh, you know, squeaky clean. But if you want to look at a period where Florida state might've pressed the pedal to the metal or maybe went as fast as they did in our old highway speed analogy, I would say it's probably in the first couple of years of, of that transition period with Jimbo. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, and that's not saying any of the staff members clearly like, like had a role in that. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, the names the that I identified obviously. were more as a reference of time, not necessarily the people that I was saying were doing that. Let me, let me clear that up. So, Of course. Now, uh, if you read Stephen Godfrey's Meet the Bagman piece, uh, which is still a really good piece of, of college ball journalism, he talks about uh, how oftentimes one of the first signs that a coach is going to get fired, if you know about it, uh, is the bag's not dropping, right? Some of the big boosters not supporting him, and then they're going to point to, hey, like your recruiting is not very good. In fact, Willie's staff had a ton of really good recruiters on that, on that staff. Like That's how they got that much le- interest level over the summer. But not having that full buy-in from, from the boosters or having buy-in for a while or I don't know if a while is right, for a very short while, if, if it ever was there with some, uh, and then having that pull is, is certainly kind of a death sentence to a coaching career in Tallahassee or in any major school. And I, I would encourage you all to go read that because I think that's very, uh, I think that's, that's very true. Um, uh, and then the third part of Jonathan's question says, I assume it's too early in Norvell's career for that effort to get a ton of momentum. Thanks for uh, all your work. This is a very strange offseason. Certainly is. And yeah, I I think it's like, look, their their class is not very good right now. Uh, so if they're dropping bags, they're either not very big bags or, or, or the bags aren't landing. Uh, we'll see what happens come the fall, come you know, National Signing Day period. I'm sure there's some kids uh, for you know for which they're they're in that might need a bag dropped, and then I think there's some kids who they've had some interest in, perhaps who they don't actually want to drop a bag on if the kid's asking for a bag. If they don't think that kid's good enough to drop a bag on, or if they don't like the kid's attitude. So, yeah, it's probably a little bit too early there, but I, I think Coach Norvell will be able to impress the boosters. But he didn't get to get you know get out on the booster tour this summer, so it's going to have to be a little more small group, intimate setting, 
And maybe Zoom calls. And that, I wish that's, we could come up with a word that is different than the boosters, because I, I do think it clouds people's perspective as to what we're talking about. You know, obviously, we're not talking about the people that like sit on the board of Seminole boosters or whatever else. When we when we talk about that, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a different subsection of uh, of the support. And it's a, you know, interesting kind of murky waters uh, and hard to define. So um, I do think that there's a little bit of um, pin up support in the pipeline that uh, once things get back to a little bit more normal that, uh, you know, like we just said, bags haven't been dropped in about 18 months. There's some people out there uh, from my understanding that want to support. And uh, just at the end of the Bowden tenure, you know, you go back and look at what was it? 2007 that Florida state signed one four-star prospect or something like that. Uh, I think that was the Dante Allen kid. Well, that's indicative of people not supporting the program under the table anymore. And, and as you went through those classes and 2009 led to 2010 and 11 and 12, you had people that were willing to get back into the horse race. And uh, I think that if Florida State starts to find some traction on the trail, uh, that you may have, uh, you know, one to two to three years with people that have uh, otherwise sat on the sidelines that are encouraged and excited to get back involved in Florida State football in whatever capacity that might be. I, I think that's pretty exciting. Also exciting, Travis Johnson attorney at law, Travis Johnson, the Metter and jo- Travis Johnson of the Metter and Johnson firm. Travis is a board certified family law attorney. Not too many of them in the state of Florida, only about 280 out of more than 110,000 attorneys in the state of Florida had the, the family law board certification. That's a big deal, man. He's truly an expert in his field, tons of experience. Family law is a pretty big deal. And this is a, it's an emotional field. It's it's a field where there's also a lot of you know finances riding on it. You need to get somebody who can go to bat for you, who really know, knows the landscape and who has the experience and the expertise to help you out. Travis Johnson is that guy. You can reach Travis 850-435-9919. It's 850-435-9919. Travis Johnson is a proud supporter of the NOLCast. Obviously, that's an 850 number, but he does have cases throughout the state. Whether it's a small divorce or a multi-million dollar divorce, either way, he can help you out. Case throughout the state. And now, free consult for NOLCast listeners and flexible payment options as well. Christian. You want to take, yeah, uh, let's you want to take one Christian's more question here? This will uh, be an interesting one. Regarding the situation with Greg Fry suing Florida State, how is it possible that after two years, almost two years, the Taggart staff never actually signed contracts, but rather worked off implied contracts. I remember the facts that contracts hadn't been finalized being a side note going into the 2018 season, but now it seems like it is coming back to bite us. Can you explain what these implied contracts are relative to a standard contract and why this was used with the Taggart staff? While Taggart is rightfully criticized for being unorganized, it seems that the situation is an example of the administration being unorganized and maybe even unprofessional. Does this fall on the boosters or the athletic department? I also hope we haven't made the same mistake with the current staff. Just looking for a better understanding of the situation as whole. Uh, thanks for the podcast. Christian also adds, to clarify, I know that Taggart handled the Fry to, tran- to Clements transition about as unprofessionally as possible. I'm just more curious about how the, admin- how the administration could have handled these quote-unquote contracts so poorly. Well, Christian, I actually have some good news for you. This is not really a Florida State thing. Um, 
In fact, there are a ton of coaches nationwide who don't sign their contracts, who just work under a you know letter of understanding, and those essentially function as contracts in in many cases. Uh, so it's not really a Florida State thing. Definitely not like the you know um, not a, not a Wilcox thing, not not, not a Taggart thing. Not a thing with, with with the current AD. It's just something that that kind of happens. They they don't necessarily take the time to negotiate every single little detail of these contracts in in many cases, and they they go unsigned and sometimes even largely unwritten, especially with, with assistants that they, they want to get them on the trail pretty soon, and they just don't necessarily see the need. Uh, it's kind of a weird deal, though, right? Like, there's not, and there are some other businesses that operate in this fashion. But for the most part, like businesses typically want to have the people with whom they have business relationships actually sign the contracts. It, it, it's, it's a nice uh, help for enforceability. However, at the same time, um, you know, when, when, when one side performs their duties la- laid out as, as the job is understood, the other side is typically obligated to perform their duties, signature or not. Uh, it just, then it's, I understand the question. Like it does seem weird, but it's, I'm just here to tell you, like it's not uncommon. Um, in fact, as someone who sees so many like FOIA, Freedom of Information Act type requests, you know, open records requests filed for contracts and coaching contracts, I don't want to say more often than not, but uh, more often than y'all realize, we get back, there's no contract for this coach. That's it. Like that's all they have. That's all they have to reply with, and it's usually have to follow up with, "Oh, okay. Any uh, any memo of understanding or, or letter of understanding, perhaps, with this coach?" And and then they they're like, "Oh yeah, we have that. We'll we'll send that over." But you got to know what to ask for. Um, yeah. So I, I so I don't think the unsigned contract here is is that uncommon, man. At least at least not from my experience. All right, that'll be uh, it for tonight's NOLCast. We'll we'll come back at a podcast with you at the back end of the week uh, to answer the remaining listener questions and we'll probably talk about uh, one or two kind of standalone subject matters. So uh, appreciate the listen as always. If you get the chance to give us a five-star review on Apple iTunes or any other podcast service, it's always appreciated. Uh, thank you for support of the NOLCast and certainly thank you for any support for our sponsors that you can give during this time. So for Bud, myself... This has been the Nullcast. Look forward to talking to you in the near future. This has been the Nullcast. The Nullcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Nulls.